see, is there a clicker? Okay, well, thank you very much for that most kind introduction. And I have to say, I'm, I'm very, very honored uh, to be here to present um, the Frederick William Lanchester uh, Memorial Le uh, Lecture. It's a very humbling experience. And I'm proud to represent my laboratory in doing so. So the, uh, the topic that I've chosen to discuss is the discovery and prediction of vortex flow aerodynamics. And in discussing this, um, I've taken somewhat of a historical approach. Um, and we'll see results on, on full aircraft, uh, CFD simulations of aircraft, and we'll see results on delta wings. So a little bit of everything. Let's see, next chart. As an outline for the talk, I do want to mention a few things about uh, Lanchester, what he accomplished, and also how he accomplished it. And then the bulk of the talk will be on vortex flow aerodynamics. I'm going to review how this was discovered, um, how we got into this business. And then I'll spend a lot of time discussing the prediction and understanding of vortex flow aerodynamics. This means we have to understand the physics of these flows and how to model them and how to assess our predictive capability on a suite of configurations. Uh, first, I found it useful to, to consider a timeline of Lanchester's life. And what I've prepared here is a chart uh, against time where I'm showing when Lanchester lived and some of his accomplishments, some of his contemporaries I've chosen, and some global events um, that coincide with Lanchester. Um, he was actually born... Uh, shortly after the, the end of the American Civil War and a little bit before the Franco-Prussian War. So this goes back quite some time. Uh, Lanchester began his aerodynamic studies uh, in the early 1890s, and he developed the, our concept of circulation in about 1896. And this was eight or so years before the first flight by the Wright brothers, or before the publishing of the boundary layer concept by Prandtl. So he was very much a man ahead of his time. When he published, he did it in a big way. He published books, uh, one on aerodynamics, one on flight mechanics, one on aircraft and warfare, and I'll say a little bit about each one of those. All of that work was completed before Monk published the concept of induced drag. So here again, he was very much ahead of things that we consider to be commonplace this day um, in our um, profession. So here we go. Um, his contributions in aerodynamics and aircraft are profound. Um, as I mentioned, he did develop the concept of circulation in this time period. The way that he developed this was through uh, uh, physics-based observations, first uh, in nature of birds, later by his own physical experiments. Interestingly, uh, the paper on his findings was rejected. Um, I have not found this paper yet. Um, but that did not slow him down. He also foresaw the invention of the airplane, and in particular, the critical need for a lightweight engine. This was going to be vital to the invention of the airplane. Um, he also received some discouragement for pursuing that, and this played a role in his contributing so much that he did to automotive engineering. Um, 
Nonetheless, despite all of that, in 1907, he published his aerodynamics book, and this was where he developed the lift concept with the wing vortex wake. This is a sketch out of Lanchester's book, and he got this right. Uh, this show, what the sketch illustrates is the fact that the circulation has to vary out the span. As the circulation varies and decreases, this means that vorticity has to be shed into the wake. The vortices roll up, and then the rolled-up <coughs> vortices roll up into this, this vertical wake structure. And he was the one that created that for us. This was a contribution from Lanchester. For aircraft operations, he also wrote a flight mechanics book about one year later. Um, in this book, he developed the Fulgoid theory of motion, very fundamental to aircraft operations. He patented contra-rotating propellers. And he also published uh, a text in, uh, about aircraft and warfare. Uh, Lanchester's period of being active in aerodynamics coincided with uh, European unrest in World War I. And he foresaw the role of combat aircraft in, in warfare. Uh, at that time, there was some disbelief by the UK uh, bureaucracy that this would really happen. You guys were not alone. This was also disbelieved in America. I had to add the footnote. Um, in 1921, uh, Billy Mitchell was the one that actually demonstrated the aerial ability to sink battleships. He actually flew that mission out of where my laboratory is at Langley. Um, and our officials didn't believe it. The ships were under the water, but they still didn't believe it. What Lanchester did, though, was he found, he used mathematics to model aerial combat, and that resulted in what's known as the Lanchester Power Laws, and he's credited with co-inventing what, co what became operations research. This is using math to simulate the outcome of warfare, given the different strengths on the, on the two sides. Um, he created that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this slide, but you cannot talk about Lanchester without recognizing his numerous contributions to ground-based locomotion. This is really where he spent most of his career. Uh, we borrowed Lanchester for a little bit um, in, in aeronautics. Just in this period, uh, I counted up. He was an inventor. He invented and patented nine items for uh, ground-based um, locomotion, very fundamental things. Uh, as are shown on that list. Um, he also invented or was the first to use eight more items, things like the accelerator pedal. Um, he was a visionary on uh, experimenting with fuel injection and turbochargers. Um, in the late 1800s, he designed a new car, uh, a lightweight engine. Uh, this is the direction that his work took. Uh, the man was dedicated. He actually sold his house to finance this project. This man was an extremely committed engineer. Um, and he also leveraged what he was learning about lightweight engines to develop the first uh, powered motorboat in the UK, a small boat, uh, which he built himself and sailed. Um, and you can see here that he even developed a prototype uh, petroelectric car. So hybrid cars were in his thinking, very much a visionary. Um, so that in his pioneering work, clearly uh, uh, impacted and contributed to ground-based locomotion, autom automobiles, tractors, buses, and World War I tanks. So, in reading about Lanchester, there were four elements that I took away 
for the way that he pursued his work. What Lanchester did was first recognize a future need, something that was important uh, to his nation or to the science. Next, he performed physics-based observations, either in nature or by conceiving and executing his own experiments. After that, he did the math to figure out how to mathematically model uh, the phenomena that he was studying. And then he made things that worked. So uh, a man like Lanchester is known as a polymath. Um, He could observe nature. He could execute physics-based experiments. He could do the mathematics. And in the end of the day, he invented things and patented them. There are very few people in history that had such skills. And I chose to make that an organizing principle for this particular talk where I'm going to be focusing on vortex flow aerodynamics, how they were discovered and why they were discovered, work that was done to understand these particular aerodynamics, work that was done to model these aerodynamics, and assessments that we made on these aerodynamics on everything from delta wings to full uh, fighter aircraft. So let's get started. Vortex flow aerodynamics uh, means uh, cases where we actually use vortices to do something on an airplane to improve its performance. And it's interesting that the vortex flow uses actually span five uh, vehicular scales. They can be used on a full uh, aircraft scale, such as the vortices you see here on the uh, Concorde. They can be used on components, such as those you see here on the Lex of an F-18. They can be used on subcomponents. This is a component on a component, such as a strake on an engine. If we now go to uh, viscous flow scales, vortex flows are used as uh, uh, vortex generators here on the wing of a Southwest uh, um, Airlines uh, transport aircraft. And they're even used at sub-boundary layer scales with what's known as micro-vortex generators. Whereas the vortex generators work on the edge of the boundary layer, the micro-vortex generators typically work on the edge of the log layer. So we've got five orders of magnitude over which this one flow phenomena is used. And it's interesting that this uh, single flow phenomena is used on aircraft ranging from a supersonic transport to GA, general aviation. They're everywhere. The focus for this talk, um, I'm going to be uh, focusing on separation-induced leading-edge vortex flows at the configuration and the component levels. And this will apply to high-speed aircraft and aircraft because of that that have slender wings, slender wing flows, with the examples being here the Concorde on takeoff or an F-16 maneuvering with the vortex lift strikes. And the place where we, the the thing that we exploit for the most part about this uh, brand of vortex flow aerodynamics is the so-called vortex lift, a way to get high lift increments at high angles of attack. And we're going to talk about how this particular uh, area came into existence. First, let's review the fundamental physics of separation-induced leading-edge vortex flows. For those of us that, that we could refer to as vorticians that study these vortices, We like to focus on a sharp-edged, highly swept delta wing. This generates all the physics that we need. It's a very complicated flow. From the sharp edge, you get a primary vortex that swirls and induces a spanwise flow over the wing. That spanwise flow itself separates and and generates a secondary vortex that's counter-rotating. 
In this sketch and for the whole talk, you'll notice that I'm, I'm, I'm citing all cases where the, um, the images or the technical results are coming from, including the authors, their affiliation, and the date that this came from. These vortices, which form on the wing, here we're looking forward on the wing, uh, generate uh, large suction pressures, and that's where the vortex lift comes from. Uh, in this case, from the primary, in this case, from the secondary. The vortices themselves engender substructures, uh, so on the vortex sheet, you see smaller vortices that form. Um, vortices uh, have a phenomena known as vortex breakdown. Here is the classic photo from Lamborn and Breyer showing the bursting that can happen over a delta wing. This is very important for a phenomena like pitch-up. Uh, it's important to aircraft. And the vortices can have exceptional unsteady content. And this is one view of a, of a vortex coming off a leading edge and a second vortex that I'll talk about later that illustrates the unsteady content from a hybrid RANS LES calculation. So those are the physics we have. How did we get in this business? The vortex lift discovery is anchored in a combat aircraft design revolution. What I'm showing in the top left is the P-51 uh, Mustang with a few aircraft parameters. This was the state of the art at the end of World War II and actually remained the frontline combat aircraft through the beginning of the Korean War in 1950. This is what everybody knew a fighter aircraft would look like. It was the best way to, um, to design one of these based on the experiences from those conflicts. In only three years, Everybody knew that a fighter aircraft looked like this. This is the revolution that was brought about by uh, uh, jet engines um, and the revolution that was brought about by pursuing uh, a slender wing, a wing that's highly swept to, uh, to get the uh, wing behind a mock cone, uh, the wing that was thin uh, to minimize wave drag, and all of this was driven at achieving supersonic flight. And in this case, you know, the YF-102 achieved 1.25. Um, there is an additional consequence, though, of these wings, particularly as regards the aspect ratio. So if we go back to our basic uh, wing theory, this is a chart that shows the aspect ratio effect on low-speed lift curve slope. So I'm plotting CL alpha against aspect ratio. For reference, I'm showing the Jones slender wing theory in red. I'm showing the lift curve slope that you would have from a 2D flat plate airfoil. That's too high. And I'm using the Paul Hamus uh, swept and tapered wing theory to show how actual wings work. In the dashed line for uh, a uh, uh, elliptic, uh, basically an unswept wing with a data point. And the solid line for delta wings from the Paul Hamus theory with three data point examples. And the issue that these high-speed aircraft had uh, with the wings that were shaped and designed to enable high-speed flight was that the low aspect ratio significantly reduced the lift curve slope. P-51 had a lift curve slope up around 4. The F-102 had a lift curve slope down around 2. So you've cut your lift curve slope in half. And it was the low-speed aerodynamics that were the issue for these wings that were designed for high-speed flight. You're either going to have to take off and land at roughly twice the angle of attack and have controlled flow, or you're going to have to land much faster, uh, square root of two, 
times the landing speed you would like. So to understand how we got into this class of wing, we also have to go back a little bit earlier in World War II. Towards the end of the war, a very unusual aircraft was literally discovered um, in the hangars at the Munich Prime Airport. Um, this was known as the Darmstadt München 1, or the DM-1 for short. It was designed by Alexander Lippisch uh, with a view toward eventually having supersonic and, and hypersonic uh, military aircraft. The DM-1 was designed to be a glider to assess low-speed handling capabilities. This is a full-scale airplane. The pilot would sit right here. Uh, this aircraft was unknown until the Allies overtook this um, airfield and discovered it in a hangar, discovered the crew. Um, it was decided that we needed to learn more about what was being done with this aircraft. So it was actually crated up. That was a full-scale uh, aircraft here, um, and it was transported uh, to the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory, as NASA Langley was called then, for testing in the 30 by 60 foot full-scale tunnel. And you can see here the actual DM-1 in that open jet tunnel. Slender wings were of interest already in the U.S., just as they were here in the U.K. Uh, people knew that thin, highly swept delta wings might enable uh, supersonic flight. We knew that jet engines were coming, but we needed to understand what this unusual shape uh, was and what the aerodynamics could look like. So the testing was done, and the tests revealed separation-induced vortex flows. I'm showing a few pages on these next three charts from the Wilson and Lovell paper, which was published by the NACA in 1947. At the time, it was classified, so it was only known within the U.S. These tests at full-scale Reynolds numbers exhibited an unusually low stall angle and a low value of CL max for the full-scale aircraft. The NACA, they had also built some subscale models, and the low Reynolds number testing of these subscale models exhibited a high stall angle and a high CL max. And what was observed in the subscale testing was that there was leading edge vortex on the small models. The decision was made to force this to happen on the full scale model, and sharp leading edge strips were actually added to the model. The sketch here shows a strip along part of the leading edge. And this shows it sticking out here. What this did was force the leading edge vortex separation to occur at full-scale Reynolds numbers, and this produced a high stall angle and a high CL max on the full-scale vehicle. And thus, the connection between leading edge vortex flow and high lift was established for the first time in these experiments. These are two more pages out of the Wilson and Lovell paper. The left one shows um, about conventional aerodynamic analysis of forces and moments. Here you need to realize that angle of attack is plotted on the, the ordinate. This is lift. So this is uh, lift is increasing, then here's the stall. This also allows you to have the drag polar and CMCL plotted. And what the data show, the original data for the, the DM1 as fabricated has a stall at around 16 degrees, a CL max of about 0.6. The one with the sharp edge basically almost doubled the stall angle, increased the lift by 60%, and 
And this right here is the vortex lift increment, which was properly interpreted in the same paper. Here they show the, the flow with a, as it would look when it was attached. Here they show the vortex flow. So this is where they'd actually put all the pieces together that um, vortex lift could be created on these slender wings and that, in fact, this might be the resolution of the low speed need uh, for high lift. Subsequent testing was performed at the NACA Langley in, in collaboration with industry. Here you see the DM1, uh, but now with a sharp edge, a bubble canopy. And this led directly to the Convair XF92A. Uh, so a few more changes were made to make this a, pra a real airplane. Uh, the first flight was in September of 48. That's only two years after the testing was done in the, uh, in the NACA tunnel. In the performance comments for this vehicle, and this was the first U.S. Delta Wing uh, airplane that you're looking at. Uh, Chuck Yeager did the, some of the flights. He was able to go supersonic in a dive. This airplane was a little underpowered. Um, the surprising thing, and Yeager was surprised, was that he had controlled low-speed flight up to 45 degrees. He actually commented that he couldn't make the airplane stall. And because of that, the predicted landing speed, which was going to be 160 miles per hour for this airplane, was reduced to only 67 miles per hour. This demonstrated that the vortex lift could be used to solve the low-speed takeoff and landing problem. And you could get this high lift with no moving parts. Okay? It's in the airframe. You've got a wing that was designed for high-speed flight. Any moving parts that you do need to put on the airplane would be more for the conventional stability and control considerations. So this was, this was a breakthrough. To summarize this part um, for separation-induced leading-edge vortex flows, this was an experimental discovery. Um, it was discovered in the wind tunnel. It became a known flow, although it was classified. Uh, there was a lot of collaboration between the NACA with industry. Um, the vortex lift was encouraging uh, for handling the low-speed aerodynamic needs. Um, and it was, it was exploited for some of what we call our Century Series aircraft, the F-102 and F-106 um, in particular. At the same time, though, there was no theoretical modeling. We had aircraft with an entirely new fluid structure over the wings, these vortices. There was no way, no physics-based modeling. These vortices had a vortex sheet. This had been observed in an experiment. They had a vortex core, and we were unable to model this at all. And this led to a succession of uh, methods to be able to predict for, uh, pressures and forces and moments, and we'll go through that next. About the time that the testing was in our, ooh, excuse me, uh, back, that the testing was being done in the full-scale tunnel, R.T. Jones at NACA Langley published slender wing theory for attached flow. This was for a conical flow, so we have a delta wing, which basically goes out to infinity. On the slender wing, you only have to solve in the cross-flow plane, so your perturbation potential is only a function of two variables, and you can do this with complex variables. Um, this is something you, if, you, if you teach, I guess it would be undergraduate aerodynamics. You can go through these steps. And what Jones, of course, showed, and I've got a photo of him up here, uh, this was a classic result that the uh, lift curve slope was pi by 2 aspect ratio. He also showed theoretically that for the slender wing, you get an, an optimum uh, induced drag. 
the slender wing is elliptically loaded, so you, you already have an optimum flow. The extension to vortex flow was done by Robert Legendre at, at Onura. This was the first solution where we had a modeling of a slender wing with vortices acting over the wing. Um, Legendre uh, published solutions where the vortex would be in a force-free condition. There was a cut of condition at the leading edge, um, and this was first published in 1952, about six years after the Jones work. Legendre's work did not address the presence of the vortex sheet, though, and that step was contributed by uh, Brown and Michael at uh, NACA Langley. They added the simplest approximation you could to the vortex sheet was a flat sheet. This was a mechanism to allow the vorticity to be fed into the vortex core. Suitable boundary conditions, and there are several uh, important results from uh, Brown and Michael's work. First, they showed a similarity form that came out of their theoretical work of the lift and the angle of attack related to the semi-apex angle. They also showed that their solution was a superposition of the Jones solution and nonlinear higher-order terms. So this is the first time you start to see this nonlinear uh, vortex lift increment coming out of a theory. The flat sheet modeling was not the best you could do. The pressures were not as good as you would like. And this led to a succession of uh, solutions uh, now uh, back in the UK. This was a refinement of the vortex sheet modeling. First, to model a curved sheet, and this was done by uh, uh, Kurt Mangler and J.H.B. Smith. Interestingly, um, Mangler's uh, breakthrough here was informed by, uh, by experimental work. Um, he, there was already work that was showing what the geometry of the sheet looked like underway in the UK. He took that geometry, mapped it forward into the transform plane, and found that it was roughly a circular arc. And somebody like Mangler knew how to work the complex variables from that point. So he modeled it as a circular arc in the transform plane, mapped the answers back, and that, that was his solution. Later, uh, Jeremy Smith uh, stuck with the complex variables approach, but by 66, he could do a numerical solution in the cross-flow plane. Um, Mangler uh, correlation was better. The Smith was further improved uh, to where th they showed a, a reasonable estimate from a conical representation of the pressures. So to snapshot that work, um, the Jones attached flow theory started in 46. In about 10 years, we went through a number of contributions to arrive at the Mangler and Smith solution. It took about 10 more years and the beginning of what we called high-speed computers for Smith to do his solution. And this shows the transformation of the, uh, of the similarity form pressure distribution plotted against span going from the Jones attached flow theory to the Smith separated flow theory. And you'll see later that Smith got the location of the suction peak quite good. So this addresses the vortex sheet modeling. What's happening inside the vortex? We also know that there's a vortex core, that these sheets roll up rather quickly. And here, a pivotal contribution was made by, by M.G. Hall. Once again, in the spirit of Lanchester, he looked to experiment. And he saw that the indications of where the edge of a, of a vortex core might be, that the flow was looking quite axisymmetric. So that uh, enabled the assumptions 
to go with an inviscid flow, Euler equations, but to solve this, uh, this axisymmetric problem. A few other simplifying assumptions. And he ended up with an analytical solution, which he referred to as, a, as an Euler vortex. So why would, you, why would you be interested in this? Well, the reason, one reason, and I've shown the velocity axial and circumferential in his vortex core plotted against the radial extent. The singularity for these inviscid flows is logarithmic. This is nothing like the classic potential vortex that everyone back then knew about, the 1 over r singularity, the distributed vorticity, fundamentally changed the radial distribution of the, of the flow inside the core, and there's a much weaker core, weaker uh, singularity. Uh, this work was extended uh, by Stewartson and Hall. Now, instead of the Euler work, uh, they solved the laminar Navier-Stokes equations. Same assumptions. And this was done through rigorous matched asymptotic expansions. Um, and what uh, Stewartson's main contribution was, it was that he showed that there was a boundary layer-like structure in the viscous subcore. And I'm showing here plots of velocity against a radial coordinate. The red dashed line here would be the Hall solution. This is the Stewartson and Hall, and you see the presence of this, this, the, this viscous subcore. Um, the theoretical work showed the structure. It not only showed the structure, but it taught us other things about the nature of the, uh, the viscous vortex core. For example, the radial extent goes as 1 over the square root of the Reynolds number, which means if you're at a Reynolds number of only a million, the radial extent of the viscous flow is 10 to the minus 3. You want to have at least 10 points across that if you're going to resolve it. Now we're talking 10 to the minus 4. So these vortex flows require boundary layer-like resolution in your numerical solutions if you're going to approximate what's happening on the inside of the vortex. Why do you want to approximate what's on the inside of the vortex? Vortices burst from the inside out. So if you haven't grid resolved the inside of the vortex, there's no reason to expect why your physics model might or might not simulate vortex breakdown and hence important parameters like pitch-up on a wing. The Stewartson solution also showed that the, uh, the radial extent is a function of the uh, swirl, so as the, as the flow spins up, uh, that also changes it. So we really learn a lot theoretically about how these vortices behave before I ever start to launch a calculation. I think there's important guidance here for computational vortex flow aerodynamics. The theoretical work was uh, extended even further. I'm showing a result from uh, Susan Brown uh, where she looked at compressibility effects. She took the Hall work and, and the only thing she did was extend it to, uh, to compressibility. Because she's solving the compressible Euler equations, we now have concepts like stagnation um, enthalpy. And that means that by the compressible flow, that will also eliminate the singularity. Now we've got two different physical mechanisms that can change the flow near the core. This type of reasoning would ex could explain rather easily why high-speed vortices burst differently than low-speed vortices. You've got two different link scales, two different physics that are playing against each other. 
A study was done for the non-axisymmetric effects. Uh, Hall's work uh, had assumed uh, axisymmetric flow. This was also done with asymptotic expansions by Mangler and Johanna Weber, uh, who had come to the UK. Um, they solved the as asymptotically, the spiral vortex sheet, and lo and behold, what they found was that the leading terms were Hall's axisymmetric solution. So this axisymmetric solution is not too bad. And as a last step, the compressible non-axisymmetric uh, theoretical modeling was done by Brown and Mangler. And this just shows how the, the jumps in the vortex sheet precisely go across the axisymmetric model. Lots of understanding. Um, as a last step in this stage, uh, M.G. Hall then put together what he called his quasi-cylindrical vortex core. Uh, it was clear that the vortex core behaved like a boundary layer, except it was a swirling boundary layer. And Hall went through the steps to uh, model this with boundary layer-like assumptions. You, the equations are parabolic, so you can march. You have edge boundary conditions that you would have to get from somewhere. Um, and Hall published, he showed uh, two examples, one which was wake vortex-like, so here with the radial distributions of the axial flow or the swirl flow, this was a wake vortex where the vortex basically was just dying out due to viscosity. And he published, he showed a leading edge vortex simulation where the, the vortex would initially accelerate and then start to decelerate. And here you see the velocity distributions like you expect now uh, for the leading edge vortex. So the one formulation was able to model all the, the, the two fundamental types of vortices that were of interest. Why was this work being done? There was all this theoretical work. The theoretical work was physics-based, or this is very much in the spirit of Lanchester. The reason this was being done was because of Concord. If you want an example of Lanchester's approach to research, this is it. There was a national interest that was, and actually it was shared interest between the UK and France to build the first supersonic transport. A tremendous amount of experimental work was done, but this tour de force of theoretical advancements um, was happening in the UK to help guide all the experimental work that was being done for this vehicle. What I'm showing on this plot is a count of uh, papers, publications against time. And I'm showing here when the original, the Jones Slender Wing and the Wilson Lovell experiment. And then you see here the, uh, the EU papers where there was modeling of the vortex sheet, the EU papers where there was modeling of the vortex, uh, vortex core. Um, and all of this was motivated at the end of the day to make something that works. And that was Concorde, which flew in uh, about <coughs> mid-1969. So... What was it that the conical flow methods didn't do? You have to go back and look at some physics. Here I want to talk about the vortex flow physics, in particular secondary separation and trailing edge effects, and I'm using the now famous Hummel delta wing experiment to talk about this. Uh, Hummel did a, a most thorough experiment on a slender aspect ratio one delta wing uh, surface flow patterns, forces and moments, off-body flow fields. What I want to focus on is the pressure distribution plotted against fraction of span. Um, and in Hummel's work, he showed that in the case of the laminar 
secondary vortex separation, if we look at one suction peak, say close to the apex, that this, the, the, the leading edge vortex pressures only got up to where my uh, laser is pointing. Then there was a large flat region which he could attribute in his experiment to a laminar secondary vortex. By tripping the separation to look at a turbulent secondary separation, now we see a much stronger suction peak, which is further outboard, um, and then some evidence of the uh, secondary separation. This was the earliest and most thorough treatment of the understanding for the role that the secondary vortex plays, the small vortex in the primary vortex. I'm showing the Smith solution as well, and here you can see that the conical flow gives a, the, the Smith conical flow gives quite a good estimate for where the suction peak is up on the front of the wing, but as we go from the front to the middle down to the back, we see the three-dimensional effects due to the trailing edge, and this was something that um, conical flow theory would not address, and it's something that leads to the next portion of this talk. The non-conical effects on lift are profound. Um, there's an ape, there's a, actually an apex singularity, but I'm going to focus on trailing edge effects. Here I'm plotting the lift coefficient against aspect ratio for delta wings at a fixed angle of attack. And I'm showing you two uh, conical flow results, the Brown and Michael and the Mangler and Smith. And it's clear that none of these, and the same would be true for Smith's result, none of these match the data. Um, linear theory is too low. There was an approximate theory, uh, a, a wake manipulation uh, 3D theory by Gersten, which got about half of the vortex lift, but not all of it. These 3D effects were accounted for by uh, Paul Hamus at NASA Langley. And he did this by uh, the connection of the vortex lift with his leading edge suction analogy. And he did this by implementing this theory in the context of high angle of attack boundary conditions. And that'll be the next part of this talk. What Paul Hamus did was realize, uh, first of all, that the, the, the concept of conservation of thrust or suction that we, that we know from a classic uh, potential flow. You can take uh, an airfoil, and as you thin the airfoil down, the pressures become, they get stronger and stronger. Even to a flat plate, you can have a singular pressure distribution, but the thrust stays about the same. By virtue of the conservation of thrust or suction, in the case of a delta wing, Paul Hamus um, made a conjecture. And his conjecture was, at least at the low angles of attack when the vortex first forms, that the suction would be conserved. But because of the leading edge cut a condition, it would have to rotate and act in a normal direction due to the vortex flow. Um, he also properly derived the high angle of attack boundary conditions uh, for the attached flow lift, which would be this formulation here, and the vortex flow lift, which would be this formulation here. Um, conjecture in the circle, this is all just doing the math. There are two constants of proportionality, Kp and Kv. Kp is the typical lift curve slope, very much like it that you're familiar with. And you could extract these at the time, this is in the 60s, from something like a vortex lattice. Um, I've, I've come to learn from teaching that you have to explain these days what a vortex lattice is. 
There was a time that most of us knew what it was, but that, those days are gone. 200, 300 uh, panels on a plane, uh, diagonally dominant matrix. You do one solve um, of a system of equations. Uh, that one solve then through post-processing, post-processing you can get the constant of proportionality, the regular lift curve slope that you're familiar with. Different pro- post-processing produced the, the second constant of proportionality. And that meant that there would be a superposition of the attached flow lift of the vortex flow lift by just the sum of these two terms in this equation. Paul Hamus thought that this might give a little bit better estimate for when the vortex was first forming from the sharp leading edge. We found that it was much better than that. I've repeated the same lift against aspect ratio for delta wings at 15 degrees angle of attack. This is the same plot you saw earlier, the two conical theories, the data, and this shows the Paul Hamus suction analogy, that it seemed to rather accurately get the, um, the trend of aspect ratio with data. The trend of aspect ratio on CL, excuse me. Uh, more to the point, uh, there is a succession of delta wings here from a very skinny, low aspect ratio to a high aspect ratio. And you can see that the suction analogy, Paul Hamus thought it might help down here in the maybe the 5 to 8 degree range, but it quite accurately predicted the lift all the way up to 25 degrees in this case. And it also quite accurately predicted the change in the character of the lift going from a slender wing down to aspect ratio 1, aspect ratio 1.5, still accurate, all the way down to aspect ratio 2. And as this theory evolved, we also learned that we could start to interpret uh, deviations from the theory. For example, we know that this is due to uh, vortex breakdown occurring over the trailing edge. The assessments were not limited to uh, low-speed aerodynamics. This is all at uh, incompressible speeds. Um, Paul Hamus went ahead and looked at the application of his concept for supersonic aerodynamics. Here we're looking at delta wings where we still have a subsonic leading edge, but as you increase Mach number, the Mach cone is getting closer, so your attachment point is getting moving back up towards the leading edge. This weakens the singularity, fundamental physics, um, and the models seem to capture that effect quite well, not only in terms of the lift, but in terms of an induced drag parameter, subtracting off the uh, skin friction, dividing by CL squared. Uh, His suction analogy seemed to quite accurately model the reduction in drag that you get from the uh, vortex flow for these different, all the way up to... uh, Mach 3.3, still uh, subsonic leading edge. Other flow applications were done. We looked at the longitudinal load distribution. This is your lift, say, per foot of cord, plotted against fraction of cord. The vortex lift increment on top of the attached flow seemed to be not too bad an estimate. Um, The the total lift is the integral of the uh, blue curve. Uh, loading was a little bit aft because the, this, this theory does not account for longitudinal curvature in the vortices. You'll see a little bit about that in a chart or two. And they even looked at it for roll damping. Um, when you have a, a rolling wing, there will be an anti, anti-symmetric contribution of the vortices to the roll damping. And this example shows CLP, the damping and roll parameter, plotted against angle of attack, and again, the, the theory 
did a pretty good job. The work was carried on further to other configurations that you see here. There's an example from uh, some uh, work that John Lamar did accounting for side edges and different trailing edges. Uh, the work, you can see here the analogy, uh, quite accurately predicted the, uh, the lift with all these different effects. Uh, work was also done on uh, straight wing aerodynamics. This was a piece that I was uh, allowed to contribute. I was very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. And in splitting up the loads between the strike forebody and the wing afterbody, you can see once again there's a very accurate prediction of the strike loads. The wing loads were not bad. This is vortex breakdown. This is a lack of more physically realistic uh, vortex interaction effects. Now, the way that and I, I, got, I was privileged enough to be able to work with Paul Hamus, and he ran his branch very much in a Lanchesterian way, if you will. For those of us that were working on theoretical aerodynamics, he made sure that we did the wind tunnel testing. Get the physics. Measure the physics. Use what you learn about the physics to advance the theoretical work that you're doing. Um, that was the environment um, that I was able to work in as a young uh, aerodynamicist. And with all of these applications, the suction analogy principles appear to be fundamental. The conservation of suction is, just seems to hold up in these uh, sharp edge um, instances. The, uh, this, it does not tell us anything about pressures, though. And what was done was to fund and, and work collaboratively with Boeing to develop what was called a free vortex sheet theory. These were in the days of higher order panels. This is in the 70s. Um, we're still learning how to solve transonic small disturbance on the uh, CFD side. So we looked at uh, actually having a panel representation of the leading edge vortex. With this, you have to solve simultaneously both for the vortex strength and the vortex geometry, so it's a nonlinear problem. But the way we approached this problem was to leverage the modeling from Jeremy Smith. Uh, Smith's work worked so well for the conical flow applications that we figured this was the right way to go for the 3D application. Um, the method was really the first. You can see here's a, a correlation with pressures against some uh, experimental results uh, from Marsden. And it was the first model to capture these 3D effects for an accurate wing surface pressure prediction. The theory, uh, this is a second application to the, the uh, Hummel wing. And uh, the reason this one is in is twofold. First, it shows as an inviscid theory it's missing Hummel's experiment in just the right way. Uh, Hummel, of course, has a turbulent uh, secondary separation, and we know from his experimental work that the suction peak should be a little bit lower due to the presence of this. So an inviscid theory should predict a little more suction than the viscous experiment. The chart also shows that the uh, integrals of the pressures produce quite accurate uh, forces and moments, including pitching moments, and this is because now in the context of this free vortex sheet theory, we're picking up the, the longitudinal curvature of the vortex as it lifts off, approaching the trailing edge. Um, that also accounts for this curve. Differences between that th the free vortex sheet theory and experiment are due to vortex breakdown. And it seemed to be a logical extension at this point to couple all the work that had come out of the UK, in particular Hall's quasi-cylindrical Nave-Stokes model, 
with the free vortex sheet. And this was a project that I got to work on. So basically we're doing a boundary layer solution down the core of the vortex. And we're now we can drive Hall's method uh, with suitable boundary conditions achieved through matched asymptotic expansions from the free vortex sheet. Looking at uh, velocities against a radial coordinate, the, uh, the swirl velocity was actually not too bad. I'm comparing to uh, Earnshaw's experiment. Uh, over acceleration, but still we're in the, at least we're in the ballpark. What came out of this analysis though, uh, the interest was in vortex breakdown. Um, and I looked at uh, the existing criteria that were in the literature to assess the onset of breakdown at the trailing edge, the angle of attack that bursting occurred at the trailing edge, for like a range of delta wing sweeps, and found that using the data from uh, Bill Wentz, that his experimental results were reasonably well approximated by this simple formulation. So this was an indication that grid resolution in the vortex core could be very important for predicting the onset of bursting at the trailing edge. A second assessment was for the effect of trailing edge sweep, which was known to be weak. And the computation once again showed, and so this is the dashed line and the squares. So we picked up both a strong effect and a weak effect with this one formulation, and we did this by having boundary layer-like resolution in the vortex. We'll come back to that because grid resolution in these vortices is critical um, to assessing whatever your physics modeling is. So, as a technology culmination gift for uh, Paul Hamus, uh, the work that his branch was doing, it ended up, it made the cover for the 50th anniversary issue of uh, the ANA magazine. Here you see the free vortex sheet. Here are some of the, vortex, here are some of the velocities in the core. The, the, this delta wing is deflected a little bit. This is early vortex flap work that Neil Frank was doing. And there are a lot of familiar signatures on this, this chart. Here's Brown and Michael. We had Jeremy Smith. Um, Worley was here. Uh, Jim Campbell was responsible for creating this. Now, this is obviously before the internet or anything. We phys he physically had this cover mailed all over the U.S. and over as much of Europe as we could accomplish to get this back to Paul Hamas in time uh, to award to him. Um, and I like the saying, the future is now. Um, since the future is now, 1981 also was a, a shift in the sea state for computing vortex flow aerodynamics. There was a fundamental shift, and this shift came about for what I'm summarizing as three key technologies. The main one being the solution to the 3D Euler equations. This is a Jameson, Schmidt, and Turkel paper. This was when we first discovered that we could uh, uh, integrate the Euler equations with their, their, the Runge-Kutta finite volume. We could now compute flows that produce entropy, um, and this meant we could possibly compute inviscid vortex flows with this new technology. It only took a couple, three years to extend that to Navier-Stokes. Early assessments were published by Fuji and Cutler. Now we're looking at viscous vortex flows. And in about uh, 14 years later, uh, to save a little bit of time, there was the last critical step, which was the formulation of the hybrid RANS-LES approach. And this is the Spallart paper 
uh, where we could now start to look at unsteady vortex flows with the Spallard DES approach. The Jameson, Schmidt, and Turkel paper changed everything. Um, before that, we used models like the free vortex sheet, and there were others. And we assessed these separation models for flow predictions. After, the, after 1981, we assessed flow predictions for separated effects. This is kind of like going from shock, uh, floating shock fitting to shock capturing. I think there's an analogy. We weren't going to model the separation anymore. We were going to capture it in the equations. And there are many consequences for vertical simulations, and I'm going to step through those next for Euler grands and uh, hybrid grands in the context of flow physics. For the Euler work, uh, there was a, a, a brief but intense activity called Vortex Flow Experiment 1, uh, a geometry that was uh, agreed to uh, with a sharp leading edge. Test, new tests were performed in five facilities. Uh, quite a number of codes were used to start to understand what these Euler solutions meant and to have new data to compare against. There were two important papers, though, that I want to highlight. The first one was by Newsom and Thomas. This was published in 85. And this paper made the point explicitly that in terms of having blunt leading edges, that the vertical solutions, some of which we were seeing in the literature, don't exist. Uh, and I'll show you this. Uh, grid convergence produced attached flow in that case. The second important paper to me was, the, was Ken Powell's dissertation at MIT. Uh, this was done under uh, Earl Merman's guidance. And what Powell showed was that the sharp leading edge vortex solutions do exist rigorously. The issue with the uh, Euler results and a blunt leading edge to me was most clearly demonstrated by uh, uh, Rick Newsom in a paper he published in 85. He was solving the conical Euler equations. It was a research code. Uh, but it was structured, and because it was conical, he only had to have, he's solving in a crossflow plane, so there's a relatively small number of points to do the grid resolution. On a coarse grid, what will happen is that the stabilizing terms that you have in your code, uh, which mimic viscous-like effects, those stabilizing terms can kick off a flow separation on a blunt leading edge. And by the way, for this case, he chose a supersonic, it was an elliptical cone, uh, with a subsonic leading edge. What you're looking at here is a spurious vortex, and this is, the entropy in this vortex is totally due to numerical error. Once it's in your solution, you can't get rid of it. What you can do, though, is proper grid resolution. And when, uh, when Newsom went to a suitable fine grid, the flow attached. This is the solution that you can get from an Euler code. The attached flow created a shock, the Euler, Euler code is modeling the physics of this shock, and through the modeled physics, you then get a what would be, I would call a proper vertical flow. So it's a buyer beware reminder. Uh, we can still use Euler a lot today, and we want to. Preliminary design, MDO, but you still have to make sure you have enough grid resolution so that the physics you're getting are real flow physics and not numerical errors. The step to viscous vortex flows came with uh, RAND's methods. Here I'm showing you an example for the sharp leading edge delta wing. This is Hummel's wing, solution by Jim Thomas and his peers. At this point it was RAND's just in thin layer with his code, uh, about half a million points. 
And through the model viscous flow, first of all, you see a, a very good agreement in lift against angle of attack. Here, the, the theory, the calculation is hooking over because of a simulation of vortex breakdown. More importantly, perhaps, are the pressure distributions against fraction of span for various cord locations. Um, and in this application, uh, uh, Thomas was, I think, very smart to focus on Hubble's laminar flow results. Um, no questions about turbulence model here in a laminar flow result. And what he showed was he, up near the front of the wing, he got a, a reasonable simulation of the vortex suction and the, the laminar secondary a little bit further back, further back, and, and, and further back. So this was one of the, one of the uh, watershed points that we could actually, we knew we could compute these flows. Now, I, I can say, at least for us in the U.S., Hummel's experiment was the gold standard. That's what we always went to for these slender wing flows to see if we were getting the right answer or not. Um, for turbulence simulations, um, that problem was resolved. Uh, there's a seminal paper by uh, Dave Degani and Lou Schiff that showed how to do the right uh, uh, extensions to the Baldwin-Lomax model. And I'm, I have to step over that one in the interest of time for this lecture. Then there was a leap. Here we are in 1987 starting to solve a delta wing with a vortex flow. Why not go after an F-18? Uh, that same year, NASA had launched a program to understand high-angled attack vortex flows with the so-called high-alpha research vehicle. We were flying an F-18 out at Dryden. All sorts of flow physics observations, various aircraft motivations, flow, uh, flow field, uh, oil flow images um, generated on this aircraft. And it seemed like a good thing to see how far we could push the uh, Navier-Stokes formulations of that day with those days' computers for approximating F-18 vortex flows. This was done by uh, Farhad Ghaffari um, and his co-workers at, at my lab at NASA Langley. And in only two years, he published the first result which was a modeling of the only the four-body lex. So he modeled the four-body and the lex part, and then basically we had a shroud that carried this geometry back. Um, it ended up being about as much as we could fit in the computer at that time. Um, the simulations, however, were quite good. Here we've got a comparison of the CFL3D results from, uh, from Gafari. Here are the flow patterns from the, uh, the, the flight test article. Bottom view with the same thing. Uh, this is full-scale Reynolds number for pressures. Um, at that time, we were doing a lot of we we're doing a lot of F18 work both in our tunnels um, and in others in the country. And this shows Gaffari's comparisons uh, for the quantitative surface pressures. And what you're looking at here in terms of four-body pressures is a pressure distribution from the windward side on the bottom around to the leeward side. This is a comparison against wind tunnel data from the David Taylor model basin. I think it was a 7 by 10 tunnel. And you can see that the, the, the predictions were quite good at these three stations. Um, we looked at pressures on the LEX starting at the, uh, the intersection with the body out to the leading edge. And again, the pressures were... Actually, it came out better than we thought it would, to be frank. Uh, the grids were crude. Um, and it was a partial model. Um, but it, it came out 
frankly quite good. And we did subsequent testing. Now here again, in the spirit of Lanchester, we actually went back into a tunnel. Uh, in this case, we went to a low turbulence pressure tunnel. Took one of the F-18 models, we were, test we were doing experimental work, and we basically built a shroud. We built Ghaffari's geometry and put that in LTPT to get a more, more direct comparison, and it came out good. In a couple of years, Ghaffari uh, extended this further. Uh, here we've got a block grid representation, and there was a very tight collaboration with Jim Thomas in our CFD branch to come up with this blocking capability. He's modeling the, the four-body Lex wing body. Here you see his viscous vortex flows with a rough comparison against the, uh, the flight article. The parameter that he had in this study was the wing leading edge flap deflection. And in this work, um, with the same type of format, we're showing pressure comparisons up on the forebody. Again, from the windward to the leeward side, very good comparison. Now the comparisons are with flight data. This was an interesting blip when we, in the comparison, we weren't sure why we would miss something like that. And it ended up there's a blister on the airplane that was not in our CAD. So yeah, I could say we missed it just the way we should. Um, good correlation on the forebody. Uh, on the Lex, this was a good correlation now with flight. Um, you know, we were happy to be on the page, frankly, and uh, the correlations came out, we felt, better than they should. We still didn't get the back of the Lex, and in, in retrospect, I think this was due to the fact that we're still, I mean, this is only a million points on this. Uh, the grid resolution is a big player there. We also, uh, following Lanchester, went back in the tunnel. Um, Ghaffari had to make a lot of compromises on the geometry to do these calculations in this time frame. For example, he had to, uh, in the geometry, he had to fare over the gap. We couldn't model a gap at that day. So at that time, I actually had uh, F-18 being tested in 7 by 10, so Ghaffari got put on the team and we dedicated some of that wind tunnel time to basically test his CFD geometry and to take the, the CFD approximations off the physical model one at a time, and we quantified how much difference it made. Um, and I gotta say, I think that's a good experience for somebody that makes his career out of CFD, which Farhad does. Uh, gives him a dose of realism uh, from an experimental side. And he got to work with some of the most expert experimentalists we had. Okay. Well, let's take another step uh, to unsteady vortex flows. Spillart uh, created the concept of hybrid RANS LES, I think it was in 98, 97, 98. And once again, in only a couple, three years, we see hybrid RANS LES simulations on a sharp edge delta wing. This is where you want to start. These solutions um, that I'm showing on this page uh, are by Scott Morton time he is with the Air Force Academy with the Cobalt Code. Hybrid RANS LES, the focus was on the delta wing vortex and the focus was on something practical though. Once again in the spirit of Lanchester, uh, you want to be able to predict vortex breakdown and vortex breakdown is an unsteady phenomenon. This is where you would really like to exploit hybrid RANS LES. Detailed rigorous numerical assessments were done including comparisons between RANS and hybrid all the fundamentals that you want to look at, including displays. Uh, how do we visualize these flows? Um, the result on the left was from 2002. 2003 is from another one of Scott's papers. 
where now we also already had adaptive mesh refinement going. Here's a case where with 2.7 million cells unadapted with a very modest increase uh, in cells, but by doing adaptive grids, we start to see the vertical substructures. I mentioned that much earlier when we were first looking at the physics of these vortex flows. You've got to get the grid in place so that the physics of your simulation has a chance to do what it's intended to do. The results from cobalt in terms of vortex breakdown are shown in the middle, and cobalt is the predecessor code to uh, Kestrel, which you've already heard about. Um, this is a vortex breakdown location in fraction of cord plotted against time. Here you see the cobalt simulation. This work was done in collaboration with one of the NATO task groups, uh, RTO task group. And I'm showing the experimental results uh, from Tony Mitchell, uh, both the mean and the max and min variation. So the cobalt results are right in line. I can also tell you that in terms of this comparison, the experiment was actually at a slightly higher uh, angle of attack than the cobalt simulations. So it would make sense that if you're going to be off a little bit, you would expect to be off downstream. So once again, this all holds together uh, the way you would expect. Well, if we can do delta wings, why not do airplanes? This is almost a rerun of what we went through with RANs, but now with hybrid RANs. This shows a paper by uh, Jim Forsyth, results from that work, uh, unsteady uh, simulations, and now about a full F-15E. Uh, at flight conditions. Uh, this had comparisons between RANs and the uh, DES. We see some things that are familiar, four-body vortices. This is, this, so these simulations are at 60 degrees angle of attack. But we also see now the complex, unsteady uh, vertical flows, very complex content. Um, grid resolution studies that Forsyth did, coarse versus fine. I think earlier today I heard Joe Coppin ask, why not do this with RANs? That's why. RANs will never get the content. At least I've never seen it get the content. That's, that's what I can honestly say here. Um, whereas DES can, and as you resolve, you get better content. So this is some 15 years ago, 15 years ago, that we could do hybrid RANs LES on a full aircraft configuration at a complex flow condition. For unsteady vortex flows, there was also an early step to looking at adaptive grids. Now I'm back to one of Scott's papers, also from 2003, where the F-18 was used, uh, not unadapted and adapted. And what you find on the right here, going from the baseline grid to the adaptive grid, now we're getting, it's a little bit harder to see, but you're getting more content in the vertical simulations. In the spirit of Lanchester, we're going after a real problem, which is vortex breakdown on the F-18. The chart on the left shows the, let's see, the velocity down the core against the longitudinal location. And once again, for RANs, you see that the answers are very smeared out, and they don't even show a breakdown. Reverse flow is down here and either the unadapted or the adapted flows both get uh, bursting. The bursting from cobalt at the angle of attack of the simulation is close to experiment, but this is still an unresolved problem. We still need to do a better job at uh, accurately predicting uh, vortex flow. Nonetheless, 
this was a, to me, this was a, another uh, benchmark result to be able to do adaptive grids, unsteady vortex flows on a full aircraft configuration 14 years ago. While that was going on, uh, from the standpoint of flow physics, there was an interest in doing a better job at simulating blunt leading edge vortex flows. You've heard a lot about sharp leading edges. Aircraft have blunt leading edges. There was some work in the 90s uh, that I was able to contribute with an NTF experiment where we had a very simple delta wing um, to quantify the effects of bluntness um, and Mach number on the onset and progression of leading edge vertical separation. This engendered an RTO task group, um, the so-called Vortex Flow Experiment 2, to study this problem. This was a time frame. We were fortunate in having extensive um, participation, 15 new tests uh, that were in Europe, eight codes. Uh, that work led to a second activity on a diamond wing, uh, again through NATO, um, very similar flavor of uh, many institutions, new wind tunnel testing, and in this case, even more codes to study the blunt leading edge vortex. It's a hard problem, um, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit about that. On the left side of the sketch, the blue is intended to represent the leading edge vertical flow as it happens on a sharp edge, sharp edge delta wing. And the key point is that the vortex origin is pinned at the wing apex when you have a sharp leading edge. If you have a blunt leading edge, you pick up a new degree of freedom namely that the origin of the vortex is displaced from the leading edge. And this origin itself will vary, for example, with angle of attack. If we increase angle of attack, this will move up the edge, and so forth. New physics come in in terms of Mach number, Reynolds number, new geometry effects, leading edge radius, and this is the problem that we need to do a good job on for aircraft. So to illustrate these differences, I'm contrasting pressure distributions, spanwise distributions at different cord stations for a sharp edge delta wing. This is the NTF data. And you see the classic vortex signature. You see that signature all the way down the wing. With a blunt leading edge, the front of the wing has attached flow. The back of the wing has a vertical flow. And something's happening in the middle that we're going to be talking about. At the 60% cord station, I'm directly comparing the blunt leading edge to the sharp leading edge, profound difference, which is perhaps not surprising. What was surprising, though, was this bump here. This bump showed up. This is a new vortex. Um, and research into this particular vortex came out of uh, hallway discussions that I had with Professor Hommel. Um, and it became a particular focus for one of the NATO task groups. After only five or six years of hard work by a lot of smart people, what we found was that there is indeed something called that we're calling an inner vortex. On this chart, we're showing you the delta wing flow field. Um, conditions are shown here. These are experimental measurements by Robert Conrath at DLR. You can't see the incipient flow physics. That'll come on a subsequent chart. What you can see is the, is the classic leading edge vortex, now from a blunt edge, and you can see the experimental evidence of this inner vortex. And we've measured this on multiple models in multiple tunnels 
Okay, it's really there. Um, the first accurate simulations, the CFD of these flow physics was done by Willie Fritz. At the time, the company was called EADS uh, with the flower solver. Uh, pretty good grid uh, for that time. And he actually captured uh, both the inner vortex, the outer vortex, and other structures that we now understand. At the beginning of this work, we couldn't get the CFD to work at all. And it was a significant uh, advancement realized through this particular NATO RTO task group. The incipient separation can be seen a little more clearly in this result on the diamond wing. Uh, this is an image uh, from uh, Neil Frank. Um, now we're, we're still dealing with RANS um, and his solver, USM3D. Um, from this collaboration, with I, I think I said there was something like 11 codes, everybody is finding these physics now. And there are three fundamental phenomena at hand with the blunt leading end vortex separation. There's this curious region of incipient separation. The incipient separation engenders the blunt leading edge vortex, as Neil shows here, and the juncture where this kink is, is where the inner vortex comes out. So this is not the succession of vortices like we see on uh, uh, wings with snags. This is a coupled set of physics that happen um, in conjunction. Uh, and let's see, the interpretation of the inner vortex has been provided by Stefan Hitzel. Um, this is a complicated chart. And I'm going to try to walk you. If, if any of you know Stefan, he puts a lot of details on one chart. But I wanted to show his chart because he's the one that first, I think, gave a correct interpretation of the um, inner vortex. All I want to call your attention to are the, uh, the boxes that are kind of in the salmon color. You're looking at the diamond wing. Here's the leading edge. There's the trailing edge. Here is the part span leading edge vortex. And what we know about these vortices is that they induce, after reattachment, they induce a flow that goes inboard on the wing. Sharp edge, blunt edge, doesn't matter. But on the blunt edge, by virtue of the blunt edge, we have this attached flow shown in Stefan's purple arrow. The attached flow that comes from the blunt edge is going to be moving outboard. That's how the attached flows work. And basically, these two boundary layer flows are on a collision course. And when they run into each other, this seems to be what forms this inner vortex. Um, Stefan published this in 2015, so this is new. But so far, all of the results from this AVT task group um, are supporting this interpretation. It would be good to have more research on this topic, but I think he has explained um, the origin, the uh, genesis of this new vortex. Here's a takeaway result from the uh, blunt leading edge uh, work. Here I'm highlighting uh, results by uh, Derek Daniel. These are from Kestrel. Um, they were part of this uh, AVT activity. Uh, in this chart, the flow is from bottom to top. So here is the leading edge of the diamond wing. There is the trailing edge. And this is at a condition, 12 degrees angle of attack, where there's a, a very good comparison with experiment. It's a little bit hard to see on the chart, but the, the, these little dots are experimental measurements. And the line is the Kestrel result. And you can see that it gets the whole flow field. And what we have found 
from this, this Kestrel result and some others in the uh, NATO work is that if you get the incipient separation in the right spot, you basically get the whole flow field. Now, you've got to be grid resolved. You've got to have a good solver. But it's reduced this problem to one fact that you've got to get right. The problem is we don't quite know how to get that right yet. Um, using the same Kestrel results, if we just go down to 10 degrees angle of attack, here the location of the incipient separation was missed. So you see there's an attached flow-like trend in the, in the CFD. There's already a vortex flow trend in the experiment. So it's the progression of the blunt leading edge separation up the leading edge that we still have to figure out how to get right. But when we get it right, you get the whole flow field. And this was something that we did not know how to do, could not claim we knew how to do until the completion of this task group and until we had results like these that I'm showing from Kestrel. All right, uh, vortex interaction flow physics. We've heard about this today in two, three papers. This is an important topic. Um, I'm showing you the cranked arrow wing aerodynamics program international so-called COAPI activity that was led experimental, experimental measurements on an F-16XL. John Lamar created this program, led it. Flights were done out at NASA Dryden. What was unique in John's work was that there were a lot of in-flight flow physics measurements, things like boundary layer profiles. You don't find that very often from flight tests. There was a collaborative effort to see how well CFD worked. Uh, ran from 2003 to 2015, a very healthy number of institutions and solvers. Um, this shows the uh, foci of the uh, collaborative efforts. And this is really, when I look back at Coopi, the theme for this was vortex interactions. I'm not sure we talked about it that way at the beginning, but this is what was being done. Here's a parameter space angle of attack against Bach number. The first co-opy effort was focused, really focused on moderate angle of attack, moderate Mach numbers. And I'll, I've got an example of the progress that was made there. These outlier conditions, for example, at high speed low alpha had very, very significant vortex shock interactions, as shown here. At the low Mach high alpha, there were very complex vortex interactions. And you've seen some of this earlier today, um, result by Ockelbolans. Lots of configuration assessments, lots of fundamental numerical studies, and I'll show you a few results of how far this has come. Going into this program, the CFD barely matched experiment. It was hit or miss. Coming out of the Coopi one effort, what was found was that we could do a pretty good job at those moderate alpha, moderate uh, mock conditions, and this is where you've got a weak vortex-vortex interaction. I'm showing CFD results again by, from Bullens, uh, the plot of CP against fraction of span, uh, lots of CFD results that are clustered in. It's a little bit hard to see, but there are experimental results in here, and the correlation is good. We did not have this at the beginning of Coopi 1, but we got this at the end. The problem was the outliers, the challenge was the outliers. And for those outliers, what I'm going to show you here is just the, uh, the low-speed, high-alpha one, the vortex-vortex interaction. 
very complex vortical flow field, um, vortices that require mesh refinement. This is a result from Kestrel with the adaptive mesh refinement. And with the challenge being on this outboard panel, results, and here I'm highlighting the ones by Andrew Lofthouse. Looking at the, the pressures against fraction of cord, uh, Lofthouse's results are presented for a mean, plus or minus, these are unsteady simulations, plus or minus one sigma, and the max and the min excursions. And the issue here is that this is a, this is a fundamentally and inherently unsteady flow. Where the flow's steady, we can do a pretty good job with CFD. The measurements were, were taken as if the flow were steady. So you really can't press this any further. But it points to the requirement to have both uh, temporarily and spatially resolved with grids um, these type of vortex flows and vortex interactions. And I have an example uh, to demonstrate the importance of that. Um, this is not a slender wing. But what it does highlight is, a, is another instance of uh, vortex interactions. Here we have all of these tip vortices on the C-130 that are licking over the wing. Uh, that looks something very important to me. And of course, they're actually moving. So you need to be able to grid resolve this type of flow, both in terms of space and time. And I believe among the reasons in the NATO work that we got such good results out of the Kestrel team was because they, they have a technology, the adaptive mesh refinement, that does that. Um, this is an example uh, It was provided to me courtesy of the Create Kestrel team on a notional P38. And what it's showing, you can see here the adaptive grids that are moving in space and in time. Um, and that allows the vortices to move back over this complex, this is a really complex interaction. And my opinion is that if you don't have adaptive grids, I don't see how you can compute this flow. I don't think there's any other way. Now, I would, I would be glad to be wrong about that. Write to me. But I don't, see a, a, I don't see how you can work this type of flow without this class of technology. What's good for that uh, example is also good, it's critical for this F16XL application. Now you can see with the type of grid resolution and the time accuracy, uh, this is another Kestrel simulation uh, by Morton and McDaniel. Look at the substructure that's starting to show up in, in, in the vortex. We have vortices on the wing scale, we have vortices on this component scale, there are sub-vortices in here. And without the temporal spatial grid resolution, um, the physics in your code doesn't have a chance to do what it might do. So what have we seen? We've talked about primary and secondary vortices, a little bit about breakdown, blunt leading edge vortex separation, vor interactions, unsteady flow effects, all things that are important to aircraft, applications on fundamental and full aircraft configurations. The question might be, how are we doing? For predicting vortex flow physics or any flow, I'd like to have, there's basically four questions you have to, an, you have to answer for yourself. Do we understand the critical flow physics that are underlying a particular flow phenomenon? What are the physics first? Do we understand how to numerically approximate these physics? Do we have fundamental data to validate any such modeling? How do I know if I'm right or wrong in my sim? And finally, 
do we understand how the critical physics might be affected from ground-to-flight scales? Most of our physics work is done on things like wind tunnels. The bottom here is a stoplight chart for the various physics that we've talked about today, and at least my opinion of where we stand in terms of understanding the physics and having validated CFD. And for the simplest cases, like a sharp edge delta wing, I think we know what's going on, and I think we probably have validated CFD. I haven't seen validation data, but I think we're there. For the secondary vortex, it's possible, but I haven't seen the detailed physics in secondary vortices measured. Um, and I may not be aware of it. Um, more complicated flows, um, I think it's possible that we understand the physics of like this inner vortex. Uh, this is, these are very new results out of these NATO collaborations. And I think they need to pass the test of time to make that greener. And as you can see, everything else is red. Um, I don't think we've got the validation data to see how well we're doing, uh, unsteady vertical flows. There's really a lot of work to be done to say if we can really trust these vortex simulations that we seem to be able to do today. So to summarize the application status, um, for getting back to vortex flow physics, and I'm repeating this, this photograph from uh, Frank Payne at uh, Notre Dame, it's my opinion that solutions that are truly grid resolved for vortex flow physics may not exist in the open literature. Now, in terms of the viscous subcore, uh, you saw from the theoretical work, Stewartson and Hall, that the link scales are like 10 to the minus 3, 10 to the minus 4. You've really got to do a boundary layer like resolution in the vortex core if you're going to actually capture the physics that are in the vortex core. There are substructures in the sheet. By the way, when things like vortex breakdown happen, they can happen on one side and not on the other. So an uncomm uncommanded roll can occur, which is important. For config arrow, uh, we're finding you know, the, the features that you need to model and that the codes can handle can be insufficiently grid resolved with the current computers we've got. Applications uh, we've got back home at my lab, we're finding that you know, uh, 500 million points is often not enough just to capture all the parts that are on your vehicle. That's a lot of points. Um, and the vortex flow physics are insufficiently resolved. That's going to take more points. And by the way, you might, once again, you might need to mirror that if you have to do both, both semi-spans. And the temporal resolution takes too long. All of these circumstances are exacerbated by full-scale Reynolds number, finer scales, and what that means is that the CFD throughput is unacceptably low. Um, you just can't get enough points computed that you would like. So what do we do? For numerics, we need to have more adaptive grid capability and faster algorithms. Uh, that's, that may be like preaching to the choir. Um, I've plotted, was, this is the uh, uh, Moore's Law uh, at 1.9 per year. We might get exaflop performance around 20, 25. But I'd rather not rely on hardware. I'd rather rely on headwear to get the faster algorithms. It doesn't seem to have been much lately. Um, and I think this came up earlier. Um, we really need 
faster algorithms to solve the type of flows that I've showed you. And we really need more adaptive grid capability. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm impressed with what, what Kestrel has. And I'm glad that I'm an American because I have access to that code. And we're using it at NASA Langley for a variety of problems, as are other institutions. What I'm not seeing, though, is the scientific process. I would like to see more adaptive grid capability with different types of algorithms that's getting published out and have debates on you know, what you're doing and why you're doing it. This is how breakthroughs occur. Um, and I may not be as aware of the technology as I need to be, but I, I'm just not seeing it. So please, those of you that are in the algorithm business, please work on that. Experimentally, there's a need for vortex flow physics quantification and validation class testing. Uh, we need to get the fundamental experiments to determine whether we're actually getting the right sims or not, complex configuration assessments, and then finally the ground-to-flight scaling assessments. And all of this work should be driven by the current and future vehicular needs to prioritize the particulars. This is, this is Lanchester in reverse, if you will, but what's most important to your country? Okay. Observe the physics, which is what he did. If you've observed the physics, do the math. And if you've gone through that path, make something that works. So in terms of current and future configurations, the type of vehicles we're seeing, and I think the ones we might be seeing, the way vortices are occurring now, for the most, in many cases, there are smaller vortices, small vortices that are interacting, and these are things that we know we don't do quite a good job on. There are legacy aircraft that will be around with the larger vortices, so the, the needs for this flow, uh, the needs for simulating these flows is not going to go away. Um, other considerations, engines keep evolving, and here's the scalloped uh, rear end, uh, the type of engines on a 787. You still have to do the propulsion airframe integration. New ideas are coming up for drag reduction. This is these, I think these are called straiklets. This is the Rick Hooker work, small vortices that are interacting. And there certainly will be, at some point, a next generation supersonic transport. And it's not going to look anything like Concord. There's technology looking at a low-boom fuselage. Um, there, there's talk about a new X-plane demonstrator. Uh, we have a version of this configuration in the low-speed tunnel at Langley right now. Uh, the wing's going to be designed with laminar flow. So it's going to be an entire... This is not what a supersonic transport will look like, the next generation, the next Concorde. But it's going to be really different. It's still going to have thin wings. It's still going to have small radii. And the vortices are going to happen on this, which means we need to be able to predict these. Okay, so for closure, I'm going to go back to a keynote address uh, that was at a Vortex Flow Symposium, RTO hosted in 2001, and this was by David Lovell. Uh, David worked uh, at that time, it was for Kinetic. And he chose to categorize these vortex flows like we've discussed into three types. Those which are designed into the vehicle or component to improve system performance. So here I'm exploiting the vortex. There are vortices that are anticipated but whose effects must be ameliorated. So here we have to tolerate the vortex. And then there are those which were unforeseen and have unforeseen consequences. This is where we have to resolve a problem. 
to be blunt. I've added a fourth type of vortex, I'll say, analysis, and these are vortices which frankly are designed out of the vehicle or component to improve system performance. This still requires a good vortex flow simulation if I'm going to modify and design my geometry to be sure that I, maybe I don't want it. So improved prediction capability and physical understanding of these vortex flows benefits all of these design and operation perspectives, whether you're going to exploit, tolerate, resolve, or avoid the vortex flow. We have to be able to simulate them well. Let me just acknowledge briefly um, that there are a number of people that have helped me with this, this presentation. This is a short list of those that have contributed figures, provided guidance to key papers, and I appreciate their help very much. And with that, I'll conclude my lecture. Thank you for your attention. Okay, thank you very much for that, Jim. It was uh, quite comprehensive.